So back when we launched our SAS benchmark study in October of 2020, we found that the year-on-year growth rate for PLG companies was 31% compared to 18% for the broader SaaS index. And PLG companies were trading at a 19x revenue multiple compared to 13x for the broader SaaS index. And so these companies are showing that they're continuing to grow even after they go public and investors are rewarding them with higher valuations. Welcome to the Blind Spots Podcast. This show is designed to help marketers and researchers understand just how to address blind spots in key go-to-market areas through primary research efforts. This podcast is brought to you by Double Check Research, an established leader in win-loss and churn research and analysis with a mission to help clients improve their win rates by turning buyer insights into competitive advantage. My name's Ryan Sorley. I'm a founder, a researcher, a soon-to-be author, a husband to one and a dad to three, and your grateful and humble podcast host. Each show, I will engage with marketing, sales, product, and competitive intelligence experts in the B2B technology space in meaningful and thought-provoking conversations with actionable strategies on how to help product marketers and those with a love for research drive value across their organizations. More and more SaaS-based software companies are embracing a product-led growth go-to-market approach to help improve user acquisition, retention, and expansion. At the forefront of PLG is OpenView, a Boston-based early-stage venture capital firm whose portfolio includes companies such as Highspot, Lessonly, and Calendly. Our guest today is Kyle Poyer, a leading authority on PLG and an OpenView operating partner. So kick back and listen as Kyle shares his view on preparing for, launching, and leveraging a well-planned and thoughtful PLG strategy on this episode of Blind Spots. Welcome to the show, Kyle. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. So let's talk about product-led growth just to, to kick the conversation off. I know it's a widely used term within B2B SaaS-based organizations. I also know it's a term that OpenView created, and you carry that flag for OpenView, as well as your, your, your colleagues. But tell me, what is it, and can you kind of unpack PLG for us a bit? Yeah, and some of the background, right, you know, going back to 2016, when we came up with the term product-led growth, for us, there were a lot of different companies that were starting to embrace this different kind of growth model. So we had invested in Expensify and Datadog, both had what you can call bottoms-up motions in how they sold the customers. Terms like freemium or B2C to B or consumerization of IT, viral loops, growth hacking were all pretty common in the, in the SaaS space. But when you talk to a company, they kind of were building their own growth model from scratch. There weren't best practices. There wasn't a community. And so we wanted to kind of bring it all together. And so for us, product-led growth is a pretty broad term, and it's purposefully so. It's meant to help create sort of new frameworks and, and examples in a community around building this next generation of software companies. And for us, what, what it also refers to is it's an end-user-focused growth model where the product is front and center and how you acquire, convert, and expand your customers. There's certainly still a role for marketing, still a role for sales. It doesn't mean product management-led, but it means you're often looking for ways to put the product in the hands of the user, letting them try before they buy, helping them be successful in a self-service manner. 
and then bringing in people to kind of accelerate that flywheel, help more people within an organization see value in a product or you know, help, help companies discover new use cases for a product, help educate them around, around the value proposition. But it's kind of taking this approach that you know, we believe allows a company to have a better experience for their customers who just want to get in and, and try out the product and, and ideally see value before they necessarily have to demo with someone. And it's also a way to accelerate revenue growth in an efficient way because you're taking things that would normally be done by people and you're you're building productized solutions which can scale a lot a lot easier it means you don't need to hire armies of of sales reps to grow but you can if you want to accelerate your growth so when you when you talk about end user based really research right being able to share the the tool with them or platform let them use it and then get feedback that informs your PLG strategy if i got that right what are the vehicles to be able to do that? Are there tools out there? How do you enable an organization to go down that path? Well, it's it'll depend on whether you already have a, an offering where that end user can just jump in and start using the product. So I'll just assume that folks do have that in place. And to me, what you're looking for is you want to really hone in on their first 30 minutes, first 45 minutes with the product. And so in some cases, we'll actually go out and recruit people in a target market and watch them using the product for that first 30 to 45 minutes and ask them questions as they go through. So, hey, is the value proposition of, of this clear? Like, what do you think the product's going to help you do? Is the sign-up process confusing? Or, you know, do you have what you need to do? What questions come up? You know, and just kind of asking more about why and more about the experience they're having as they go through helps uncover a lot of areas just to make the product a lot more intuitive and to guide this end user to activate or basically get to a point where they've seen value in the product really quickly and they're doing the things that ultimately correspond with the business outcomes that you want to see, which is God, they convert when they stay, stay a user. I find that really helpful. There's also some technology tools that can be useful in this process. So session recording tools like Full Story or Hotjar allow you to watch the screen recordings of all of your users as they go through the app, where you can see drop-off points, you know, where they've clicked on certain areas and they don't do what someone wants them to do, and also see users that go down the right path and kind of help you guide, hey, how can we do things in the application that would get more new, new users to follow the same journey as well? And then in addition to the, the qualitative, I, my belief is that with an end user model, you're normally having 10 or maybe 100 times the number of people that could be using your product as with a traditional sales-led approach where it's very executive and kind of champion-led in a sales process. And so that means you need to look for more scalable ways to, to get feedback. So things like in-app surveying with tools like UserLeap or in-app analytics around the specific end user journeys and product funnel data through tools like an Amplitude a mixed panel, a pendo, become even more important in a, in a product-led model. So um, once you've collected all of that data, what happens next? Uh, you have a lot of data to work with now. You, you start to see some trends. Um, how do you prioritize what actions to take? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, you end up getting really cross-functional feedback. It could relate to, hey, you know, we need to change our messaging and positioning so that it better speaks to the pain points that our users are actually facing in the real world to you know, do a better job of enticing them to sign up for the product in the first place, or could mean you know, copy in the app to help show value of 
you know, why should someone take this next step to integrate their tool or to go through this lengthy setup process? Like what's in it for them? How do we make that more crisp and clear? All the way to product solutions that require engineering work and you know significant resource investment to adjust the experience. So it might be, hey, we currently allow a one-click integration with XYZ tools, but we might need to consider A, B, and C as well. Or maybe a lighter weight integration where someone can just upload a CSV file. And that that's not something that can be implemented immediately. And so when I run these interviews or my team runs these interviews, we develop a long list of all the different ideas that came out of the interviews of what could be adjusted. And then we start to map them against what's the potential impact that we think this change could have and how hard is it to implement. And you know, I think that the kind of classic product management frameworks like the Intercom Rice framework are a good tool that, that you could turn to. And then also add, hey, who's the function? What's which function would I ultimately own this? Is this product marketing? Is this kind of brand marketing? Is this the product management and engineering team? Is this customer success to adjust the way we support our users in the app? And so normally that helps narrow down into there's some quick wins that can go be implemented immediately. A lot of those are kind of copy changes, don't necessarily need, even need to be A-B tested. And then there's some bigger changes that probably require more validation work, verifying with quantitative data and alignment with the product roadmap in general so that you can figure out how to slot in these growth objectives with kind of building out new capabilities in the product. And then once those changes have been made, you've prioritized them, whether they're strategic, big rocks, or or the little ones that you just referred to. What type of impact have you seen out there? Measurable impacts. Well, the nice thing is that you can see real impacts to revenue pretty quickly. I mean, for me, I think of it as the product-led journey for a customer is getting to your website and then getting them to sign up to start using the product and then getting them to activate where they've completed sign up and they've done some initial activity that's, that means that they've seen value. The product's delivered on what that person came to the product to use. So like for SurveyMonkey, that might be they completed their first survey and they got five responses back for it. And then you have conversion as that later step. And then you could even think about it as, okay, of the people that converted, what percentage went on to expand their, their spend versus churn? Although those indicators are more lagging indicators, it takes a longer period of time to see if you can influence those metrics. And it's a lot faster to see if you can implement changes to your activation rates or your product signup rates. But to me, I mean, I'm looking to figure out where the biggest drop-off rates, my current experience, and then systematically optimize the areas that are going to have the greatest impact. And the nice thing is that these layer on top of each other. So you could have, if you get more people that are on your website to sign up for the product, and then you get more of them to see value and activate, and then you get more of the ones who see value to you know actually pay for the product by reducing friction in the purchase experience. Those all have a compounding effect and a 10 or 15% improvement at each step, you know, might mean that you're actually doubling your revenue growth at the end of the day. So you could almost think of it as the analog is in the sales process, right? And, you know, you might look at your sales funnel and say, hey, you know, our SDR connect rate or our connect to demo, demo creation to demo actually happening, looking at all of those steps and trying to figure out how to optimize them. It's a very similar model, just brought with a product-focused funnel rather than the traditional sales-focused funnel. 
And then the benefits seem great and clear, and the process seems really structured, and the tools that you can use to help support the process seem, seem like great tools <laughs> to be able to support the process. What are the cautionary tales? You know, where have you seen people start down this path and um, it didn't work out for some reasons? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest <clears throat> cautionary tales are folks that don't have a PLG motion in place and are adding one. And to me, it's a really big cultural shift as a company. If you have a product that is normally gated behind a sales conversation, you know, your pricing probably isn't transparent. You haven't had to build for kind of this rapid onboarding or an end user focused model. And all of a sudden you launch a self-service funnel. What might happen in that immediate period of time is that you might end up having fewer people contacting sales. So sales is upset. It's harder for them to hit their quota. And your product experience might not have actually been set up to have a really great seamless experience for those that are signing up self-service. And so the challenge there is, hey, are you actually taking this really valuable traffic and, and website visitors and you're dropping them in a bad experience that's hard to kind of ever win, win them back over later on? And so I think that some folks can see it as, hey, we, we tried launching this self-service thing and sales hated it. It didn't lead to a lot of growth and they get discouraged by it. And that's why I don't think of product-led growth as just, say, self-service. It's about changing the culture of the company to being an end-user-focused model. And there might be things that you could do before going all the way to self-service that help set you up on the right path, right? So things like, hey, do you launch a sidecar product for end-users to showcase an end-user value proposition? Or do you uh, allow for a developer side of experience where if developers are an audience, they can start prototyping and building, but they can't necessarily go live until they talk to sales. So I think that there's ways to start you know, getting into product-led growth that don't have some of these negative implications and that can start to create the foundation for, for future growth. Do you have any stories of, of situations where everything was going really well with the strategy and then all of a sudden, boom, something came out of left field and threw them back because they didn't anticipate some force? And that might be the pandemic or it could be something else that pushed them back off course. Does that ever happen? I think if anything, a lot of companies actually have had to really lean into the PLG motion with the pandemic because digital transformation has accelerated. Really, every company has a digital transformation initiative. And so for a, a lot of companies, demand has skyrocketed. And if they didn't have a PLG motion or PLG strategy, they would have an extremely hard time servicing that demand or those changes in how their customers wanted to engage with the product. Like, Imagine if you had to go through a BDR, an AE demo experience, like customer success implementation, just to launch Zoom at your company. Like they probably would not have seen the uh, the dramatic growth that they've experienced. And so, I personally believe actually PLG companies have set up a much stronger foundation for the pandemic. But what what I've noticed is that more companies recently have realized that they have to launch some sort of free offering to allow customers to try before they buy. And even if they were already PLG, like Shopify in the pandemic extended their free trial from 14 days to 90 days. GitHub, which has always been free for that individual developer using work with public repositories, they launched a free product for Teams. Atlassian moved to a freemium model where they went free for up to 10 users for just about every product in their portfolio. So I am seeing kind of 
increasing expectations around this ability to try before you buy that even PLG companies are, are running up against. That's really uh, interesting. And that strong foundation, I, I'm sure a lot of organizations out there working to build their PLG strategy have, but ha- how many don't, right? So is this the, is it the majority of companies now have some sort of PLG strategy in place or is it still kind of a smaller percentage? When we survey companies, about a quarter tell us that they're all in on product-led growth and it's a core part of their strategy. My view, another quarter to a half are kind of dipping their toe into it or experimenting with it, have it on their roadmap, but something they're interested in, haven't really committed to it yet. And then the rest have no intention of going product-led. But what's fascinating, so if a quarter of software companies in general are all in on product-led growth, if you look at the IPOs over the last three or four years, half of those new public companies have adopted a product-led growth strategy. And so there's something about PLG that seems to make these companies doing better, especially at scale, and more ready to go public. And so it's when you look at a, a Snowflake or Twilio or Datadog, many of the, the most successful publicly traded companies are, are going PLG. And so I expect that that success that these companies are having are going to inspire a lot more of the next generation of software companies to build with a PLG model in mind. And do you have any statistics about those companies who have adopted PLG? Do they see higher growth rates, higher revenues? Like, Do you have any of those locked, locked away in your folder? I do. So I, on the private market side, what is fascinating is that companies with the product-led growth approach appear to grow a little bit slower than their peers in the early days. But around 5 to 10 million in ARR, the magic of the PLG motion really kicks in and they're able to sustain higher growth rates at scale. And I think the reason why is it just takes time to grow with a PLG model. So instead of being able to you know, go out, hire a couple of AEs, give them a 500K quota, and they can go out and sell $25,000, $30,000 deals, you're looking at building this you know, big base of users that start to convert at small dollar sizes. And then those small dollar sizes grow into larger and larger ones over time. But you're playing the long game with your customers. And so I think that that's playing out in the, in the data around product-led growth. And then otherwise, we are noticing that you know, SaaS companies have done clearly well despite the recession. I mean, the market caps that companies are trading at are just through the roof. But product-led companies have been doing even better than, than the broader SaaS index. So back when we launched our SAS benchmark study in October of 2020, we found that the year-on-year growth rate for PLG companies was 31% compared to 18% for the broader SAS index. And PLG companies were trading at a 19x revenue multiple compared to 13x for the broader SAS index. And so these companies are showing that they're continuing to grow even after they go public and investors are rewarding them with higher valuations. The proof is in the pudding, so they say. <laughs> It is. And just to transition over to to the study that you just published on pricing, I think you interviewed or sorry, collected data from 2200 SaaS companies on their pricing strategies. What tell me a little bit about that study and what were some of the the key takeaways? 
Yeah, and it's a study that we've been conducting since 2017. And so we keep adding more and more companies to the data set. The idea is, hey, pricing is kind of a black box for a lot of companies, especially early on. Founders are the, are the ones who are responsible for pricing. Most companies don't have someone full-time in their organization that thinks about pricing or is you know, collecting research and data around it, at least not until they hit call it 50 million in annual recurring revenue. And so I wanted to look at, hey, what are how are companies approaching this? Who owns it today? What research are they are they doing on it? How much testing have they done? How much do they charge? How do they feel about their pricing? What's their pricing philosophy on how they approach it? And so we're able to look at both trends over time and patterns within different types of, of software companies from kind of small to mid to large. Great, that's awesome. So, so what were some of the the big findings? So, a, a few things. One is that usage based pricing is really on the rise and is uh, taking on the traditional seat based or user based pricing model. When I mean usage based pricing, I don't mean necessarily just purely consumption based or pay as you go pricing, but also any company where the primary way that they monetize or the value metric that they use is a usage-related metric, like whether that's API calls or transactions or insert metric here, contacts that you generate, like a HubSpot. And so when questions were asked about usage-based pricing back in 2014, only 23% of software companies said that they had a usage-based pricing model. And today, we had 39% of companies in our study have adopted a usage-based model. And so I see this increasingly common because it better reflects the unique value being unlocked by a lot of products. And when you look at some of the leading trends in software right now, like AI, automation, API, the value that a customer gets from your product is probably not proportional to how many people are logging in. In fact, it might even be the inverse where you need fewer people logging in if your product is doing more. And so it was interesting to see companies start to adopt adopt usage-based models. And I expect that they'll be more and more common going forward. Another thing to call out is that while you know we talked about product-led growth and you know freemium models and free trial models, you know, it is really easy to allow people to be able to try out your product at low friction. That doesn't necessarily mean prices need to be low. I think that's an important distinction for folks. And the study is finding that in the early days, most software companies are pretty substantially underpriced. And the average deal size that companies get as they go from seed stage to expansion stage to growth stage to exit goes up and up and up. In fact, it goes for up by more than 50% from seed stage to expansion stage, goes up another 40% from expansion to growth stage, and then another 10% from growth to IPO. And so the takeaway for a reader would be, hey, have you actually optimized your pricing? You might have a pretty big opportunity to raise your prices without hurting your conversion rates. And that it's something that companies should at least be asking the question and evaluating more regularly than they are. And in fact, like if you think about how a lot of people work, they have projects that are very urgent, something's not working, problems you know on fire, but it's not maybe that important. An opportunity around a price increase, it's probably never urgent because your customers aren't asking you to raise your prices. But it's extremely important in terms of the incremental revenue growth and margin growth that it can have on a business. And so I just advocate that folks make sure to think about the importance of the things that they're doing and save time for big strategic initiatives like pricing rather than just the kind of urgent things that come across their desk. Okay. 
So last question, I thank you so much for all this great content. Last question is, as you think about your career, all that you've done up to this point, all that you will do, when you retire and sail off into the sunset somewhere, warm hopefully, what is the one thing that you want to be remembered for? That is a tough question. (laughs) I'd say, I mean, for me, I love being a partner, kind of working hand in hand with companies around their biggest strategic challenges. You know, I get so much pleasure when I can see the impact that working with a company has has had and see that across a number of entrepreneurs. So I think for me, it would be that collection of, hey, there are X number of companies that have ultimately gone on to be really successful. And a big part of that, they believe, goes back to decisions that they made early on in their business that set them on the right path. And so I love to just you know be able to look back and, and be able to point to those things because at the end of the day, if, if a founder or an executive team is able to build a, a successful startup, they're able to help a lot of customers because those customers you know, really reliant on their products. And they're able to build uh, really great jobs and careers for their communities. A successful company has an extremely lasting impact. And so to play a role in, in making sure that happens is extremely rewarding. Well, you you uh, are far from retirement and already reaping the benefits of that, that reward, right, for all the good work you've been doing for organizations, helping them grow. And that was Kyle Poyer, operating partner at OpenView Venture Partners here in Boston. And if you like this content on product-led growth, OpenView has a ton of great information on the product-led growth section of their blog. If you want access to the pricing study that Kyle referenced during our session, feel free to check out the product and pricing section where you'll find the study. And if you like this show, feel free to subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. And thank you so much for listening.